It was evening, and the grey light was again waning fast when they halted for the night. They were very weary. The mountains were veiled in deepening dusk, and the wind was cold. Gandalf spared them one more mouthful each of the Miruvor of Rivendell. When they had eaten some food, they had called a council. We cannot, of course, go again tonight, he said. The attack on the Red Horn Gate has tired us out. And we must rest here for a while. And then where are we to go? asked Frodo. We still have our journey and our errand before us, answered Gandalf. We have no choice but to go on, or to return to Rivendell. Pippin's face brightened visibly at the mere mention of returning to Rivendell. Mary and Sam looked up hopefully, but Aragorn and Boromir made no sign. Frodo looked troubled. I wish I was back there, he said. But how can I return without the shame, unless there is indeed no other way, and we are already defeated? You are right, Frodo, said Gandalf. To go back is to admit defeat, and to face worse defeat to come. If we go back now, then the ring must remain there. We shall not be able to set it out again. The sooner or later Rivendell will be besieged, and after a brief and bitter time it will be destroyed. The ring race are deadly enemies, but we are only shadows yet of the power and terror that they will possess if the ruling ring was on their master's hand again. Then we must go on if there is a way, said Frodo with a sigh. Sam looked back into the gloom. There is a way that we may attempt, said Gandalf. I thought from the beginning, when I first considered this journey, that we would try it. But it is not a pleasant way, and I have not spoken of it to the company before. Aragorn was against it, until the pass over the mountains had at least been tried. If it is a worse road than the Redhorn Gate, then it must be evil indeed, said Mary. But you had better tell us about it, and let us know of the worst at once. The road that I speak leads to the mines of Moria, said Gandalf. Only Gimli lifted up his head. A smoldering fire was in his eyes. On all the others, a dread fell at the mention of that name. Even to the hobbits, it was a legend of vague fear. The road may lead to Moria, but how can we hope that it will lead through Moria? said Aragorn darkly. It is a name of ill omen, said Boromir. Nor do I see the need to go there. If we cannot cross the mountain, let us journey southward until we come to the Gap of Rohan, where men are friendly to my people, taking the road that I followed on my way hither. Or we might pass by and cross the Eisen into Langstrad and Lebanon, and so come to Gondor from the regions nigh to the sea. Things have changed since you came north, Boromir, answered Gandalf. Did you not hear what I told you of Saruman? With him I may have business of my own ere all is over, but the ring must not come near Isengard, if that can be by any means prevented. The Gap of Rohan is closed to us while we go with the bearer. As for the longer road, we cannot afford the time. We might spend a year in such a journey, and we will pass through many lands that are empty and harborless. Yet they would not be safe. The watchful eyes of both Saruman and the enemy are on them. When you came north, Boromir, you were in the enemy's eyes only one stray wanderer from the south and a matter of small concern to him. His mind was busy with the pursuit of the ring. But you return now as a member of the ring's company, and you are in peril as long as you remain with us. The danger will increase with every league that we go south under the naked sky. 
Since our open attempt on the mountain pass, our plight has become most desperate, I fear. I see now little hope if we do not soon vanish from sight for a while and cover our tail. Therefore, I advise that we should go neither over the mountains nor around them, but under them. That is a road, at any rate, that the enemy would least expect us to take. We do not know what he expects, said Boromir. We may watch all roads, likely and unlikely, but in that case to enter Moria would be to walk into a trap, hardly better than knocking at the gates of the Dark Tower itself. The name of Moria is Black. You speak of what you do not know when you liken Moria to the stronghold of Sauron, answered Gandalf. I alone of you have ever been to the dungeons of the Dark Lord, and only in his older and lesser dwellings in Dol Guldur. Those who pass the gates of Baradur do not return. But I do not lead you into Moria if there were no hope of coming out again. If there are orcs there, it may prove ill for us, that is true. But most of the orcs of the Misty Mountains were scattered and destroyed in the Battle of the Five Armies. The eels report that orcs are gathering again from afar, but there is hope that Moria is still free. There is even a chance that the dwarves are there, and in some deep hall of its father's Balin son of Hunden may be found. However it may prove, one must tread the path that need chooses. I will tread the path with you, Gandalf, said Gimli. I will go and look into the halls of Durin, whatever may wait there, if you can find the doors that are shut. Good, Gimli, said Gandalf. You encourage me. We will seek the hidden doors together, and we will come through. In the ruins of the dwarves, a dwarves' head will be less easy to bewilder than elves or men or hobbits. Yet it will not be the first time I have been to Moria. I sought there long for Thrain, son of Thror, after he was lost. I passed through, and I came out again alive. I too once passed the Dimbril Gate, said Aragorn quietly. But though I also came out again, this memory is still very evil. I do not wish to enter Moria a second time. And I don't wish to enter it even once, said Pippin. Nor me, muttered Sam. Of course not, said Gandalf. Who would? But the question is, who will follow me if I lead you there? I will, said Gimli eagerly. I will, said Aragorn heavily. You followed my lead almost to disaster in the snow. And I have said no word for blame. I will follow your lead now, if this last warning does not move you. It is not of the ring nor of us others that I am thinking now, but of you, Gandalf. And I say to you, if you pass the doors of Moria, beware. I will not go, said Boromir. Not unless the vote of the whole company is against me. What do Legolas and the little folk say? The ring bearer's voice surely should be heard. I do not wish to go to Moria, said Legolas. The hobbit said nothing. Sam looked at Frodo. At last, Frodo spoke. I do not wish to go, he said. But neither do I wish to refuse the advice of Gandalf. I beg that there should be no vote until we have slept on it. Gandalf will get the votes easier in the light of the morning than in this cold below. How the wind howls. At these words, all fell into silent thought. They heard the wind hissing among the rocks and trees, and there was a howling and wailing round them in the empty spaces of the night. Suddenly, Aragorn leapt to his feet. How the wind howls, he cried. It is howling of wolf voices. The wargs have come to the west of the mountains. Need we wait until morning then, Sindhyanov? It is as I said. The hunt is up. 
Even if we live to see the dawn, who now will wish to journey south by night with the wild wolves on his tail? How far is Moria? asked Boromir. There was a door southwest of Caradras, some fifteen miles as the crow flies, and maybe twenty as the wolf runs, answered Gandalf grimly. Then let us start as soon as the light of tomorrow, if we can. The wolf that one hears is worse than the orc that one fears. True, said Aragorn, loosening his sword in his sheath. But where the wag howls, there also the orc prowls. I wish I'd taken Elrond's advice, muttered Pippin to Sam. I'm no good after all. There is not enough of the breed of Brandoblaster Bullroarer in me. These howls freeze my blood. I don't ever remember feeling so wretched. My heart's right down to my toes, Mr. Pippin, said Sam. We aren't eaten yet, and there are some stout folk here with us. Whatever it may be in store for old Gandalf, I'll wager it isn't a wolf's belly. For their defense, the company climbed on top of the small hill under which they had been sheltering. It was crowned with a knot of old and twisted trees about which lay a broken circle of boulder stones. In the midst of this they lit a fire, for there was no hope that darkness and silence would keep their trail from discovery by the hunting packs. Round the fire they sat, and those that were not on guard dozed uneasily. Poor Bill the Pony trembled and sweated where he stood. The howling of the wolves was now all around them, sometimes nearer and sometimes further off. In the dead of night, many shining eyes were seen peering over the bow of the hill. Some advanced almost to the ring of stones. At a gap in the circle, a great dark wolf shape could be seen, halted, gazing at them. A shuddering howl broke from him. As if he were a captain summoning his pack for the assault. Gandalf stood up and strode forward, holding his staff aloft. Listen, hound of Sauron! He cried. Gandalf is here! Fly if you value your foul skin! I will shrivel you from tail to stout if you come within this ring! The wolf snarled and sprang towards them in a great leap. At that moment there was a sharp twang. Legolas had loosened his bow, and there was a hideous fear, and the leaping shape thudded to the ground. The elvish arrow had pierced his throat. The watching eyes were suddenly extinguished. Gandalf and Aragorn strode forward, but the hill was deserted. The hunting packs had left. All about them the darkness grew silent, and no cry came on the sighing wind. The night was old, and westwards the waning moon was setting, gleaming fitfully through the breaking clouds. Suddenly Frodo started from sleep. Without warning, a storm of howls broke out fierce and wild all about the camp. A great host of wags had gathered silently and now was attacking them from every side at once. Flame fuel on the fire! Sighed Gandalf to the hobbits. Draw your blades and stand back to back. In the leaping light, as the fresh wood blazed up, Frodo saw many grey shapes spring over the ring of stones. More and more followed. Through the throat of one huge leader, Aragorn passed his sword with a thrust. With a great sweep, Boromir hewed the head off another. Beside them, Gimli stood with his stout legs apart, wielding his dwarf axe. The bow of Legolas was singing. In the wavering firelight, Gandalf seemed suddenly to grow. He rose up, a great, menacing shape like the monument of some ancient king of stone set upon a hill. Stooping like a cloud, he lifted a burning branch and strode to meet the wolves. They gave back before him. High in the air, he tossed the blazing brand. It flared with a sudden white radiance like lightning, and his voice rolled like thunder. Oh, Ranid Rathraven, 
Kaldan in Kalroth. There was a roar and a crackle. And the tree above him burst into a leaf and bloom of blinding flame. The fire leapt from treetop to treetop. The whole hill was crowned with a dazzling light. The swords and knives of the defenders shone and flickered. The last arrow of Legolas kindled in the air as it flew and plunged burning into the heart of a great wolf chieftain. All the others fled. Slowly the fire died till nothing was left but folding ash and sparks. A bitter smoke curled from above the burned tree stumps and blew darkly from the hill as our first light of dawn came dimly in the sky. Their enemies were routed and did not return. What did I tell you, Mr. Pippin? Said Sam, sheathing his sword. Those won't get him. Now that's an eye-opener, no mistake. Nearly singed the hair off my head. When the full light of the morning came, no signs of the wolves were to be found. And they looked in vain for the bodies of the dead. No trace of the fight remained, but the charred trees and the arrows of Legolas lying on the hilltop. All were undamaged, save one of which only the point was left. It is as I feared, said Gandalf. These were no ordinary wolves, hunting for food in the wilderness. Let us eat quickly and go. That day the weather changed again, almost as if it was at the command of some power that had no longer any use for snow, since they had retreated from the pass. A power that wished now to have a clear light in which things that moved in the wild could be seen from far away. The wind had been turning through north to northwest during the night, and now it failed. The clouds vanished southwards and the sky was opened, high and blue. As they stood upon the hillside ready to depart, a pale sunlight gleamed over the mountain tops. We must reach the doors before sunset, said Gandalf, or I fear we shall not reach them at all. It is not far, but our path may be winding, for here Aragorn cannot guide us. He has seldom walked in this country. And only once have I been under the west wall of Moria. And that wasn't long ago. There it lies, he said, pointing away southeastwards to where the mountain sides fell sheer into the shadow at their feet. In the distance could be dimly seen a line of bare cliffs, and in their midst, taller than the rest, one great grey wall. When we left the pass, I led you southwards and not back to our starting point, as some of you may have noticed. It is well that I did so. For now, we have several miles less to cross, and haste is needed. Let us go. I do not know which to hope, said Boromir grimly. That Gandalf will find what he seeks, or that coming to the cliff we shall find the gates lost forever. All choices seem ill, and to be caught between wolves and the wall the likeliest chance. Lead on. Gimli now walked ahead by the wizard's side. So eager was he to come to Moria. Together they led the company back towards the mountains. The only road of old to Moria from the west had lain along a course of a stream, the Siranon, that ran out from the feet of the cliffs near where the doors had stood. But either Gandalf was astray, or else the land had changed in recent years, for he did not strike the stream where he looked to find it, only a few miles southward from their start. The morning was passing towards noon. And still the company wandered and scrambled in a barren country of red stones. Nowhere could they see any gleam of water or hear any sound of it. All was bleak and dry. Their hearts sank, 
They saw no living thing, and not a bird was in the sky. But what the night would bring if it caught them in that lost land, none of them cared to think. Suddenly Gimli, who had pressed on ahead, called back to them. He was standing on a knoll and pointing to the right. Hurrying up, they saw below them a deep and narrow channel. It was empty and silent, and hardly a trickle of water flowed among the brown and red-stained stones of its bed. But on the near side there was a path, much broken and decayed, that wound its way among the ruined walls and paving stones of an ancient high road. Ah, here it is at last, said Gandalf. This is where the stream ran. Siradon, the gate stream, they used to call it. But what has happened in the water I cannot guess. It used to be swift and noisy. Come, we must hurry on. We are late. The company were footsore and tired, but they trudged doggedly along the rough and winding track for many miles. The sun turned from a noon and began to go west. After a brief halt and a hasty meal, they went on again. Before them, the mountains frowned, but their path lay in a deep trough of land, and they could see only the higher shoulders and the far eastward peaks. At length, they came to a sharp bend, there the road, which had been veering southwards between the brink of the channel and the steep fall of the land to the left, turned and went due east again. Rounding the corner, they saw before them a low cliff, some five fathoms high, with a broken and jagged top. Over it, a trickling water dripped, through a wide cleft that seemed to have been carved out by a fall that had once been strong and full. Indeed, things have changed, said Gandalf. There is no mistaking the place. There is all that remains of the stair falls. If I remember it right, there was a flight of steps cut in the rock at this side. But the main road wound away left and climbed with several roots up to the level ground at the top. There used to be a shallow valley beyond the falls right up to the walls of Moria. And the Cyrilon flowed through it with the road beside it. Let us go and see what things are like now. They found the stone steps without difficulty and Gimli sprang swiftly up them, followed by Gandalf and Frodo. When they reached the top, they saw that they could go no further that way, and the reason for the drying up of the gate stream was revealed. Behind them, the sinking sun filled the cool western sky with glimmering gold. Before them stretched a dark, still lake. Neither sky nor sunset was reflected on its sullen surface. The Cyrenon had been dammed and had filled all the valley. Beyond the ominous water were reared vast cliffs, their stern faces pallid in the fading light, final and impassable. No sign of gate or entrance, not a fissure or crack could Frodo see in the frowning stone. Here are the walls of Moria, said Gandalf, pointing across the water. And there the gate stood once upon a time, the elven door at the end of the road from Holland by which we have come. But this way is blocked. None of the company, I guess, will wish to swim in this gloomy water at the end of the day. It has an unwholesome look. Well, then we must find a way around the northern edge, said Gimli. The first thing for the company to do is to climb up the, by the main path and see where that will lead us. Even if it were no lake, we could not get our baggage pulling up this stair. But in any case, we cannot take the poor beast into the mines, said Gandalf. 
The road under the mountain is a dark road, and there are places narrow and steep which he cannot tread, even if we can. Oh, poor old Bill, said Frodo. I had not thought of that. And poor Sam, I wonder what he will say. I am sorry, said Gandalf. Poor Bill has been a useful companion, and it goes to my heart to turn him adrift now. I would have traveled lighter and brought no animal, least of all this one that Sam is fond of, if I had it my way. I feared all along that we should be obliged to take this road. The day was drawing to its end, and cold stars were glinting in the sky above the sunset, when the company, with all the speed they could, climbed up the slopes and reached the side of the lake. In breath it looked to be no more than two or three furlongs at the widest point. How far it stretched away southward they could not see in the failing light. But its northern end was no more than half a mile from where they stood, and between the stony ridges that enclosed the valley and the water's edge there was a rim of open ground. They hurried forward, for they had still a mile or two to go before they could reach the point of the far shore that Gandalf was making for, and then he had still to find the doors. When they came to the northernmost corner of the lake, they found a narrow creek that barred their way. It was green and stagnant, thrust out like a slimy arm towards the enclosing hills. Gimli strode forward, undeterred, and found that the water was shallow, no more than ankle-deep at the edge. Behind him, they walked in file, threading their way with care, for under the weedy pools were sliding and greasy stones, and footing was treacherous. Frodo shuddered with disgust at the touch of the dark, unclean water on his feet as Sam, the last of the company, led Bill up on the dry ground. On the far side, there came a soft sound, a swish, followed by a plop, as if a fish had disturbed the still surface of the water. Turning quickly, they saw ripples, black edged with shadow in the waning light. Great rings were widening outwards from a point afar out in the lake. There was a bubbling noise, and then silence. The dusk deepened, and the last gleams of the sunset were veiled in cloud, and over this he passed his hands to and fro, muttering words under his breath. Then he stepped back. Look, he said, can you see anything now? The moon now shone over upon the the moon now shone upon the grey face of the rock, but they could see nothing else for a while. Then slowly on the surface, where the wizard's hands had passed, faint lines appeared like slender veins of silver running in the stone. At first they were no more than pale as gossamer threads, so fine that they only twinkled fitfully where the moon caught them. But steadily they grew broader and clearer, until their design could be guessed. At the top, as high as Gandalf could reach, was an arc of interlacing letters in an elvish character. Below, Though the threads were in places blurred or broken, the outline could be seen of an anvil and a hammer surmounted by a crown with seven stars. Beneath these again were two trees, each bearing crescent moons. More clearly than all else were shown forth in the middle of the door a single star with many rays. Ah! Here are the emblems of Durin, cried Gimli. And there is the tree of the high elves, said Legolas. And the star of the house of Fëanor, said Gandalf. They are wrought in Ithildin that mirrors only starlight and moonlight, and sleeps until it is touched by one who speaks words now long forgotten in Middle-earth. It is long since I heard them, and I thought deeply before I could recall them to my mind. But what does the writing say? asked Frodo, who was trying to decipher the inscription of the Ark. 
on the arch. I thought I knew all the elf letters, but I cannot read these. The words are in the elven tongue of the west of Middle-earth in the elder days, answered Gandalf. But they do not say anything of importance to us. They say only, the doors of Durin, Lord of Moria, speak, friend, and enter. And underneath, small and faint is written, I, Navi, made them. Calebrimor of Holland drew these signs. What does that mean, speak, friend, and enter? asked Merry. That is plain enough, said Gimli. If you're a friend, you speak the password, and the doors will open, and you can enter. Yes, said Gandalf. These doors are probably governed by words. Some dwarf gates will open only at special times or for particular persons, and some have locks and keys that are needed when all the necessary times and words are known. These doors have no key. In the days of Durin, they were not secret. They usually stood open and door words sat there, but if they were shut, any who knew the opening word could speak it and pass in. At least so is it recorded, is it not, Gimli? It is, said the dwarf. But what the word was is not remembered. Narvi and his craft and all his kindred have vanished from the earth. But do you know the word, Gandalf? asked Boromir in surprise. No, said the wizard. The others looked dismayed. Only Aragorn, who knew Gandalf well, remained silent and unmoved. Then what was the use of bringing us to this accursed spot? cried Boromir, glancing back with a shudder at the dark water. You told us that you had once passed through the mines. How could that be if you did not know how to enter? The answer to your first question, Boromir, said the wizard, is that I do not know the word yet. But we shall soon see. And, he added with a glint in his eyes under his bristling brows, you may ask what is the use of my deeds when they are proved useless. As for your other question, do you doubt my tale or have you no wits left? I did not enter this way, I came from the east. If you wish to know, I will tell you that these doors open outwards. From the inside, you may thrust them open with your hands. From the outside, nothing will move them save the spell of command. They cannot be forced inwards. What are you going to do then? Asked Pippin, undaunted by the wizard's bristling brows. Knock on the doors with your head, Peregrine Took, said Gandalf. But if that does not shatter them, I'm allowed a little peace from foolish questions. I will seek for the opening words. I once knew every spell in all the tongues of elves or men or orcs that was ever used for such a purpose. I can still remember ten score of them without searching in my mind, but only a few trials, I think, will be needed. And I shall not have to call on Gimli for words of the secret dwarf tongue that they teach to none. The opening words were in Elvish, like the writing on the Ark, that seems certain. He stepped up from the rock again and lightly touched with his staff the silver star in the middle beneath the sign of the anvil. He said in a commanding voice. The silver lines faded, but the blank grey stone did not stir. Many times he repeated these words in different order or varied them. Then he tried other spells, one after another, speaking now faster and louder, now soft, slow. Then he spoke many single words of elvish speech. Nothing happened. The cliff towered into the light. The countless stairs were kindled and the wind blew cold. And the doors stood fast. Again Gandalf approached the wall and lifting up his arms he spoke in tones of command and rising wrath. Edro! Edro! He cried and struck the rock with his staff. Open! Open! He shouted, 
and followed it with the same command in every language that had ever been spoken in the west of Middle-earth. Then he threw his staff on the ground and sat down in silence. At that moment, from far off, the wind bore to their listening ears the howling of wolves. Bill the Pony started in fear, and Stam sprang to his side and whispered softly to him. Do not let him run away, said Boromir. It seems that we shall need him still, if the wolves do not find us. How I hate this foul pool. He stooped, and picking up a large stone, he cast it into the dark water. The stone vanished with a soft slap, but at the same instant there was a swish and a bubble. Great rippling rings formed on the surface out beyond where the stone had fallen, and they moved slowly towards the foot of the cliff. Why did you do that, Boromir? said Frodo. I hate this place too, and I'm afraid. I don't know of what. Not of wolves, or the dark behind the doors, but something else. I'm afraid of the pool. Don't disturb it. I wish we could get away, said Merry. Why doesn't Gandalf do something quick? said Pippin. Gandalf took no notice of them. He sat with his head bowed either in despair or in anxious thought. The mournful howling of the wolves was heard again. The ripples on the water grew and came closer. Some were already lapping on the shore. With a suddenness that startled them all, the wizard sprang to his feet. He was laughing. I have it, he cried. Of course, of course, absurdly simple, like most riddles when you see the answer. Picking up his staff, he stood before the rock and said in a clear voice, Melon! The star shone briefly and faded again. Then, silently, a great doorway was outlined, though not a crack or joint had been visible before. Slowly it divided in the middle and swung outwards, inch by inch, until both doors lay back against the wall. Through the opening, a shadowy stair could be seen climbing steeply up, but beyond the lower steps the darkness was deeper than the night. The company stared in wonder. I was wrong after all, said Gandalf, and Gimli too. Mary, of all people, was on the right track. The opening word was inscribed on the archway all the time. The translation could have been, Say friend and enter. I had only to speak the Elvish word for friend and the doors opened. Quite simple. <laughs> ah, too simple for a learned lawmaster in these suspicious days. Ah, those were happier times. Now, let us go. He strode forward and set his foot on the lowest step. But at that moment, several things happened. Frodo felt something seize him by the ankle, and he fell with a cry. Bill the Pony gave a wild neigh of fear, and turned tail and dashed away along the lakeside into the darkness. Sam leaped after him, and then, hearing Frodo's cry, he ran back again, weeping and cursing. The others swung around and saw the waters of the lake seething as if a host of snakes were swimming up from the southern end. Out from the water, a long, sinuous tentacle had crawled. It was pale green and luminous and wet. Its fingered end had hold of Frodo's foot and was dragging him into the water. Sam, on his knees, was now slashing at it with a knife. The arm let go of Frodo, and Sam pulled him away, crying out for help. Twenty other arms came rippling out. The dark water boiled, and there was a hideous stench. Hey, 
to the gateway! Up the stairs! Quick! Shouted Gandalf, leaping back, rousing them from the horror that seemed to have rooted all but Sam to the ground where they stood. He drove them forward. They were just in time. Sam and Frodo were only a few steps up and Gandalf had just begun to climb. When the groping tentacles withered across a narrow shore and fingered the cliff wall on the doors, one came wriggling over the threshold glistening in the starlight. Gandalf turned and paused. If he was considering what word would close the gate again from within, there was no need. Many coiling arms seized the door on either side, and with horrible strength swung them round. With a shattering echo they slammed, and all light was lost. A noise of rendering and crashing came dully through the ponderous stone. Sam, clinging to Frodo's arm, collapsed on a step in the black darkness. Poor old Bill, he said in a choking voice. Poor old Bill, wolves and snakes. But the snakes were too much for him. I had to choose, Mr. Frodo. I had to come with you. They heard Gandalf go back down the steps and thrust his staff against the doors. There was a quiver in the stone and the stairs trembled, but the doors did not open. Well, well, said the wizard. The passage is blocked behind us now. And there is only one way out on the border side of the mountains. I feel from the sounds that boulders have been piled up and the trees uprooted and thrown across the gate. I am sorry, for the trees were beautiful and had stood long. I felt that something horrible was near from the moment I let my foot first touch the water, said Frodo. What was the thing? Or were there many of them? I do not know, answered Gandalf, but the arms were all guided by one purpose. Something has crept or has been driven out from dark waters under the mountains. There are older and fouler things than orcs in the deep places of the world. He did not speak aloud his thought that whatever it was that dwelt in the lake, it had seized on Frodo first among the company. Boromir muttered under his breath, but the echoing stone magnified the sound to a hoarse whisper that all could hear. The deep places of the world, and thither we are going against my wish. Who will lead us now in this deadly dark? I will, said Gandalf, and Gimli shall walk with me. Follow my staff. As the wizard passed on ahead up the great steps, he held his staff aloft, and from its tip there came a faint radiance. The wide stairway was sound and undamaged. Two hundred steps they counted broad and shallow, and at the top they found an arched passage with a level floor leading on into the dark. Let us sit and rest and have something to eat, here on the landing, since we can't find a dining room, said Frodo. He had begun to shake off the terror of the clutching arm, and suddenly he felt extremely hungry. The proposal was welcomed by all, and they all sat down on the upper steps, dim figures in the gloom. After they had eaten, Gandalf gave them each a third sip of the Miravore of Rivendell. It will not last much longer, I'm afraid, he said. But I think we will need it after the horror of that gate. And unless we have great luck, we shall need all that is left before we see the other side. Go carefully with the water, too. There are many streams in the wells and the mines, but they should not be touched. We may not have a chance of filling our skins and bottles till we come down to Dale. How long is that going to take us? 
asked Frodo. I cannot say, answered Gandalf. It depends on many chances. But going straight without mishap or losing our way, we shall take three or four marches, I expect. It cannot be less than forty miles from the west door to east gate, in a direct line, and the road may wind much. After only a brief rest, they started on their way again, all the eager to get the journey over as quickly as possible, and were willing, as tired as they were, to go on marching still for several hours. Gandalf walked in front as before. In his left hand he held up his glimmering staff, the light of which just showed the ground before his feet. In his right he held his sword, glamdering. Behind him came Gimli, his eyes glinting in the dim light as he turned his head from side to side. Behind the dwarf walked Frodo, and he had drawn the short sword, Sting. No gleam came from the blades of Sting nor of Glamdring, and that was of some comfort. For being the work of elvish smiths in the elder days, these swords shone with a cold light, if any orcs were near at hand. Behind Frodo went Sam, and after him Legolas, and the young hobbits in Boromir. In the dark at the rear, grim and silent, walked Aragorn. The passage twisted round a few turns and then began to descend. It went steadily down for a long while before it became level once again. The air grew hot and stifling, but it was not foul. And at times they felt currents of cooler air upon their faces, issuing from the half-guessed openings in the walls. There were many of these. In the pale ray of the wizard's staff, Frodo caught glimpses of stairs and arches, and of other passages and tunnels sloping up or running steeply down, or opening blankly dark on either side. It was bewildering beyond hope of remembering. Gimli aided Gandalf very little, except by his stout courage. At least he was not, as were most of the others, troubled by the mere darkness in itself. Often the wizard consulted him at points where the choice of way was doubtful, but it was always Gandalf who had the final word. The mines of Moria were vast and intricate beyond the imagination of Gimli, Gloin's son. Dwarf of the mountain race though he was. To Gandalf, the far-off memories of a journey long before were now of little help, but even in the gloom and despite all windings of the road he knew whither he wished to go, and he did not falter, as long as there was a path that led towards his goal. Do not be afraid, said Aragorn. There was a pause longer than usual and Gandalf and Gimli were whispering together. The others were crowded behind, waiting anxiously. Do not be afraid. I have been with him on many a journey, if never on one so dark, and there are tales of Rivendell of greater deeds of his than, than any that I have seen. He will not go astray, if there is any path to find. He has led us here against our fears, and he will lead us out again. At whatever cost to himself, he is surer of finding the way home in blind night than the cats of Queen Baruthiel. It was well for the company that they had such a guide. They had no fuel nor any means of making torches. In the desperate scramble at the doors, many things had been left behind. Without any light, they could soon have come to grief. There were not only many roads to choose from, there were also many places, holes and pitfalls, and dark wells beside the path in which their passing feet echoed. There were fissures and chasms in the walls and floor, and every now and then a crack would open right before their feet. 
The Wydus was more than seven feet across, and it was long before Pippin could summon enough courage to leap over the dreadful gap. The noise of churning water came up from far below, as if some great mill wheel was turning in the depths. Rope, muttered Sam. I knew I'd want it if I hadn't got it. As these dangers became more frequent, their march became slower. Already they seemed to have been tramping on, on endlessly into the mountain's roots. They were more than weary, and yet there seemed no comfort in the thought of halting anywhere. Frodo's spirits had risen for a while after his escape, and after food and a draught of the cordial, but now a deep uneasiness, growing to dread, crept over him again. Though he had been healed in Rivendell of the knife stroke, that grim wound had not been without effect. His senses were sharper and more aware of things that could not be seen. One sight of change that he soon had noticed was that he could see more in the dark than any of his companions, save perhaps Gandalf. And he was in any case the bearer of the ring. It hung upon his chain against his breast, and at whiles it seemed a heavy weight. He felt the certainty of evil ahead and of evil following, but he said nothing. He gripped tighter on the hilt of his sword and went on doggedly. The company behind him spoke seldom, and then only in hurried whispers. There was no sound but of the sound of their own feet, the dull stump of Gimli's dwarf boots, the heavy tread of Boromir, the light step of Legolas, the soft, scarce-heard patter of hobbit feet, and in the rear the slow, firm footfalls of Aragorn with his long stride. When they halted for a moment, they heard nothing at all, unless it were occasionally a faint trickle and drip of unseen water. Yet Frodo began to hear, or to imagine that he heard, something else. Like the faint fall of soft bare feet, it was never loud enough or near enough for him to feel certain that he heard it, but once it had started it had never stopped while the company was moving. But it was not an echo, for when they halted, it pattered on for a little all by itself, and then grew still. It was after nightfall when they had entered the mines. They had been going for several hours with only brief halts, when Gandalf came to his first serious check. Before him stood a wide dark arch, opening into three passages. All led in the same general direction, eastwards, but the left-hand passage plunged down, while the right hand climbed up, and the middle way seemed to run on, smooth and level, but very narrow. I have no memory of this place at all, said Gandalf, standing uncertainly under the arch. He held up his staff in the hope of finding some marks or inscription that might help his choice, but nothing of the kind was to be seen. I am too weary to decide, he said, shaking his head. I expect that you are all wary as I am. Oh, area. We had better halt here before what is left of the night. You know what I mean. In here it is ever dark, but outside the late moon is riding westward, and the middle night has passed. Poor old Bill, said Sam. I wonder where he is. I hope those wolves haven't gotten yet. To the left of the great arch they found a stone door. It was half-closed but swung back easily to a gentle thrust. Beyond there seemed to lie a wide chamber cut in the rock. Steady, steady, cried Gandalf as Merry and Pippin pushed forward. 
glad to find a place where they could rest with at least some feeling of shelter than in the open passage. Seddy, you do not know what is inside yet. I will go first. He went in cautiously, and the others filed behind. There, he said, pointing with his staff to the middle of the floor. Before his feet they saw a large round hole like the mouth of a well. Broken and rusty chains lay at the edge and trailed down to the black pit. Fragments of stone lay near. One of you might have fallen in and still be wondering when you are going to strike the bottom, said Aragorn to Mary. Let the guide go first while you have one. It seems to have been a guard room made for the watching of the three passages, said Gimli. That hole was plainly a well for the guard's use, covered with a stone lid. But the lid is broken. We must all take care in the dark. Pippin felt curiously attached by the well. While the others were unrolling blankets and making beds against the walls of the chamber, as far as possible from the hole in the floor, he crept to the edge and peered over. A chill air seemed to strike his face, rising from invisible depths. Moved by a sudden impulse, he groped for a loose stone and let it drop. He felt his heart beat many times before there was any sound. Then far below, as if the stone had fallen into deep water in some cavernous place, there came a plonk, very distant, but magnified and repeated in the hollow shaft. What's that? cried Gandalf. He was relieved when Pippin confessed what he had done, but he was angry, and Pippin could see his eye glinting. Fool of a duke, he growled. This is a serious journey, not a hobbit walking party. Throw yourself in next time, and then you will be of no further usance. Now be quiet. Nothing more was heard for several minutes, but then there came out of the depths faint knocks. Tom, tap, tap, tom. They stopped. And when the echoes had died away, they were repeated. Tap, tom, tom, tap, 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 tom. They sounded disquietly like signals of some sort. But after a while, the knocking died away and was not heard again. That was the sound of a hammer. Or I have never heard one, said Gimli. Yes, said Gandalf, and I do not like it. It may have nothing to do with Peregrine's foolish stone, but probably... Something has been disturbed that would have been better left quiet. Pray do nothing of the kind again. Let us hope that we shall get some rest without further trouble. You, Pippin, can go on the first watch as a reward. He growled as he rolled himself in a blanket. Pippin sat miserably by the door in the pitch dark. But he kept on turning round, feeling that some unknown thing would crawl up from out of the well. He wished he could cover the hole, if only with a blanket, but he dared not move. Or go near it, even though Gandalf seemed to be asleep. Actually, Gandalf was awake, though lying still and silent. He was deep in thought, trying to recall every memory of his former journey in the mines, and considering anxiously the next course that he should take. A false turn now might be disastrous. After an hour, he rose up and came over to Pippin. Get him to a corner and have a sleep, my lad, he said in a kindly tone. You won't sleep, I expect. I cannot get a wink, so I may as well do the watching. I know what is the matter with me, he muttered, 
as he sat down by the door. I need a smoke. I have not tasted it since the morning before the snowstorm. The last thing that Pippin saw, as sleep took him, was a dark glimpse of the old wizard huddled on the floor, shielding a glowing chip of his gnarled hands between his knees. The flicker for a moment showed his sharp nose, and the puff of smoke. It was Gandalf who roused them all from sleep. He had sat and watched all alone for about six hours, and had let the others rest. And in the watches I have made up my mind, he said. I do not like the feel of the middle way, and I do not like the smell of the left-hand way. There is a foul air down there, or I am no guide. I shall take the right-hand passage. It is time we began to climb up again. For eight dark hours, not counting two brief halts, they marched on, and they met no danger and heard nothing, and saw nothing but the faint gleam of the wizard's light, bobbing like a will-o'-the-wisp in front of them. The passage they had chosen wound steadily upwards. As far as they could judge, it went in great mounding curves, and as it rose it grew loftier and wider. There were now no openings to other galleries or tunnels on either side, and the floor was level and sound, without pits or cracks. Evidently they had struck what once had been an important road, and they went forward quicker than they had done on their first march. In this way they advanced some fifteen miles, measured in a direct line east, though they must have actually walked twenty miles or more. As the road climbed upwards Frodo's spirits rose a little, but he still felt oppressed, and still at times he heard, or thought he heard, away behind the company and beyond the fall, a patter of their feet, a following footstep that was not an echo. They had marched as far as the hobbits could endure without a rest, and all were thinking of a place where they could sleep. When suddenly the walls to right and left vanished, they seemed to have passed through some arched doorway into a black and empty space. There was a great draught of warmer air behind them, and before them the darkness was cold on their faces. They halted and crowded anxiously together. Gandalf seemed pleased. I chose the right way, he said. At last we are coming to the habitable parts, and I guess that we are not far now from the eastern side. But we are high up, a good deal higher than the Dimril Gate, unless I am mistaken. From the feeling of the air we must be in a wide hall. I will now risk a little real light. He raised his staff, and for a brief instant there was a blaze like a flash of lightning. Great shadows sprang up and fled, and for a second they saw a vast roof far above their heads, upheld by many mighty pillars hewn of stone. Before them and on either side stretched a huge empty hall, its black walls, polished and smooth as glass, flashed and glittered. Three other entrances they saw, dark black arches, one straight before them eastward and one on either side. Then the light went out. That is all that I shall venture on for the present, said Gandalf. There used to be great windows on the mountainside, and shafts leading out to the light in the upper reaches of the mines. I think we have reached them now, but it is night outside again, and we cannot tell until morning. If I am right, tomorrow we may actually see the morning peeping in, but
but in the meanwhile, we had better go on no further. Let us rest if we can. Things have gone well so far, and the greater part of the dark road is over. But we are not through yet, and it is a long way down to the gates that open to the world. The company spent that night in the great cavernous hall, huddled close together in a corner to escape the draught. There seemed to be a steady inflow of chill air through the eastern archway. All about them as they lay hung in the darkness, hollow and immense, and they were all oppressed by the loneliness and vastness of the Dolvin halls and endlessly branching stairs and passages. The wildest imaginings that dark rumour had ever suggested to the hobbits fell altogether short of the actual dread and wonder of Moria. There must have been a mighty crowd of dwarves here at one time, said Sam. And every one of them busier than badgers for five hundred years to make all this. And most in hard rock, too. What did they do it all for? They didn't live in these darksome holes, surely. These are not holes, said Gimli. This is the great realm and city of the Dwarod Elf. And of old it was not darksome, but full of light and splendor. As is still remembered in our songs. <clears throat> He rose, and standing in the dark, he began to chant in a deep voice, while the echoes ran away into the roof. The world was young, the mountains green. No strain yet on moon was seen. No words were lain on stream or stone, when Durin woke and walked alone. He named the nameless hills and dells. He drank from yet untasted wells. He stooped and looked in. Mirror, mirror, and saw a crown of stars appear, as gems upon a silver thread, above the shadow of his head. The world was fair, the mountains tall, in elder days before the fall, of mighty kings in Argothrond, and Gondolin, who now beyond the western seas have passed away. The world was fair in Durin's day. A king he was on carven throne, in many pillared halls of stone, with golden roof and silver floor, and runes of power upon the door, the light of sun and star and moon, in shining lamps of crystal hewn, undimmed by cloud or shade of night. There shone forever fair and bright. There hammer on the anvil smote. There chisel clove and graver wrote. There forged was blade and bound was hilt. The delver mined, the mason built. There burial, pearl and opal pale, and metal wrought like fish's mail. Buckler and corslet, axe and sword, and shining spears were laid in hoard. Unwearied then were Durin's folk, beneath the mountain's music woke. The harpers harped, the minstrels sang, and at the gates the trumpets rang. The world is grey, the mountains old, the forge's fire is ashen cold. No sharp is rung, no hammer falls. The darkness dwells in Durin's halls. The shadow lies upon his tomb. In Moria, in Khazad Doom. But still in sunken stars appear. 
in dark and windless mirror mere, there lies his crown in water deep, till Durin wakes again from sleep. <laughs> I like that, said Sam. I should like to learn it. In Moria, in Khazad-dûm. But it makes the darkness seem heavier. Thinking of all those lamps. Are there piles and jewels and gold lying about here still? Gimli was silent. Having sung his song, he would say no more. Piles of jewels? said Gandalf. No, the orcs have often plundered Moria. There is nothing left in the upper halls. And since the dwarves fled, no one dares to seek the shafts and treasuries down in the deep places. They are drowned in water, or in a shadow of fear. Then what do the dwarves want to come back for? asked Sam. For Mithril, answered Gandalf. The wealth of Moria was not in gold and jewels, the toys of the dwarves, nor in iron, their servant. Such things they found here, it is true, especially iron, but they did not need to delve for them. All things that they desired they could obtain in traffic. For here alone, in the world, was found Moria silver. Or true silver, as some have called it. Mithril is the elvish name. The dwarves have a name which they do not tell. Its worth was ten times that of gold. And now it is beyond price, for little is left above ground. And even the orcs dare not delve here for it. The loads lead away north towards Caradras, and down to darkness. The dwarves tell no tale, but even as Mithril was the foundation of their wealth, so also it was their destruction. They delve too greedily and too deep, and disturb that from which they fled. Durin's Bane Of what they brought to light the orcs have gathered nearly all and given it tribute to Sauron, who covets it. Mithril, all folk desired it. It could be beaten like copper and polished like glass, and the dwarves could make of it a metal, light and yet harder than tempered steel. Its beauty was like that of common silver, but the beauty of Mithril did not tarnish or grow dim. The elves dearly loved it, and among many uses they made of it Ithildin, Star Moon, which you saw upon the doors. Bilbo had a corset of mithril rings that Thorin gave him. I wonder what has become of it. Gathering dust still in Mickledelvig Matham House, I suppose. What? cried Gimli, startled out of his silence. A corset of Moria silver! That was a kingly gift! Yes, said Gandalf. I never told him, but its worth was greater than the valley of the Hoshire, and everything in it. Frodo said nothing. But he put his hand under his tunic and touched the rings of his mail shirt. He felt staggered to think that he had been walking about with the price of the shire under his jacket. Had Bilbo known? He felt no doubt that Bilbo knew quite well. It was indeed a kingly gift. But now his thoughts had been carried away from the dark mines to Rivendell, to Bilbo, and to Bag End, in the days while Bilbo was still there. He wished with all his heart that he was back there, and in those days, mowing the lawn, or pottering among the flowers, and that he had never heard of Moria, or Mithril, or the Ring. A deep silence fell. One by one the others fell asleep. Frodo was on guard. 
As if it were a breath that came through the unseen doors out of deep places, dread came over him. His hands were cold and his brow damp. He listened. All his mind was given to listening and nothing else for two slow hours, but he heard no sound, not even the imagined echo of a footfall. His watch was nearly over, when far off, where he guessed that the western archway stood, he fancied what he could see two pale points of light, almost like luminous eyes. He started. His head had nodded. I must have nearly fallen asleep on guard, he thought. I was on the edge of a dream. He stood up and rubbed his eyes, and remained standing, peering into the dark, until he was relieved by Legolas. When he lay down, he quickly went to sleep, but it seemed to him that the dream went on. He heard whispers, and saw the two pale points of light approaching, slowly. He woke and found that the others were speaking softly near him, and that a dim light was falling on his face. High up above the eastern archway, through a shaft near the roof, came a long, pale gleam. And across the hall, through the northern arch, light also glimmered faint and distantly. Frodo sat up. Good morning, said Gandalf. For morning it is again at last. I was right, you see. We are high up on the eastern side of Moria. Before today is over, we ought to find the great gates and see the waters of Miramir lying in the Dimbledale before us. I shall be glad, said Gimli. I have looked on Moria, and it is very great. But it has become dark and dreadful, and we have found no sign of my kindred. I doubt now that Balin ever came here. After they had breakfasted, Gandalf decided to go on again at once. We are tired, but we shall rest better when we are outside, he said. I think that none of us will wish to spend another night in Moria. No, indeed, said Boromir. Which way shall we take? Yonder eastward arch? Maybe, said Gandalf, but I do not know yet exactly where we are, unless I am quite astray. I guess that we are above and to the north of the great gates, and it may not be easy to find the right road down to them. The eastern arch would probably prove to be the way that we must take, but before we make up our minds we ought to look about us. Let us go towards that light in the north door. If we could find a window, it would help, but I fear that the light comes only down deep shafts. Following his lead, the company passed under the northern arch. They found themselves in a wide corridor. As they went along it, the grimmer grew stronger, and they saw that it came through a doorway on their right. It was high and flat-topped, and the stone door was still upon its hinges, standing half open. Beyond it was a large square chamber. It was dimly lit, but to their eyes, after so long a time in the dark, it seemed dazzlingly bright, and they blinked as they entered. Their feet disturbed a deep dust upon the floor, and stumbled upon things lying in the doorway whose shapes they could not at first make out. The chamber was lit by a wide shaft high in the further eastern wall. It slanted upwards, and, far above, a small square patch of blue sky could be seen. The light of the shaft fell directly on a table in the middle of the room. A single oblong block about two feet high, upon which was laid a great slab of white stone. It looks like a tomb, muttered Frodo, and, and bent forwards with a curious sense of foreboding to look more closely at it. Gandalf came quickly to his side. On the slab ruins were deeply graven. These are Daron's ruins, such as we used of old in Moria. 
said Gandalf. Here is written in the tongues of men and dwarves. Balin, son of Fundin, lord of Moria. He is dead then, said Frodo. I feared it was so. Gimli cast his hood over his face. <laughs>